Across the recent days, challenging issues and images have bombarded us. Almost every day, the local headlines have included recently a picture or a new headline or new evidence about Hannah Graham, the UVA student whose remains were found this week along Old Lynchburg Road in Albemarle County. This is such sad and horrific news. The national and the world headlines generate equal measures of sadness and concern. We learn of a new Ebola case in New York City and the ongoing threat of that complicated disease. And then the terror across the Middle East spread by ISIL. This extremist group continues to worsen and now includes chemical warfare, further increasing levels of fear and concern, We live in a dangerous and complicated world. Then this week, I had three separate conversations with individuals who shared with me how their lives and their faith had been bombarded recently. Not by terror, not by major issues of the world, but by the church, by Christian faith. I had several conversations this week where individuals shared with me how Christian faith had become hurtful to them, not helpful, where individuals shared with me uh, how Christian teachings or Christian messages had been received as oppressive, not hopeful and freeing, had been conveyed in ways that chased people away from the church rather than welcomed them, loved them showed them a way to life and love and peace and the kingdom of God. Clearly, the Christian church is called to show people the way of God. The church and the Christian message can also become very alienating, chasing people away. One of the recent books, very good books that I've been reading lately, has a wonderful title. The answer to bad religion is not no religion. This book is written by a Methodist pastor who confirms that amidst all the bad news of the world, there's also lots of bad religion out there. And he, his name is Martin Thielen, makes the case that while some may present the Christian faith in a bad way, the answer to bad religion is not no religion. The answer to bad religion is working to present Christian faith in a a good way, a way that aligns more with Jesus than judgment a way that opens the kingdom of God as Jesus did, that draws people in with faith and love and compassion and hope as Jesus did, not chase people away with certitude and a fundamentalism that breeds alienation and animosity. We can get so wrapped up in our religion, especially bad religion that's too often rooted in certainty and certitude, that we find ourselves a long way from God. One thoughtful scholar puts it this way, the enemy of faith is certitude. The righteous live by faith, not certitude. Jesus is always helping the just And the righteous live by faith, not certainty. Jesus never intended to create a religion, especially a religion of intolerant and self-righteous people. 
Jesus intends to lead us all toward the reign of God where love and care, where warmth and welcome, where hope and hospitality, where worship and work all depict that we belong to God and God is working through us for the emerging reign of God. The rock musician Bono sums it up pretty well. He says, Christians in all their certitude can be so very hard to tolerate. I don't know how Jesus does it. (laughs) In our passage for today, we have another example of Jesus trying to help us all with life, with our dilemmas, complicated as they may be, with our questions. Jesus wants us to move closer to the kingdom of God. Jesus wants to help us with our priorities. Wants us to move us away from bad religion so that our lives are shaped in the way of love and purpose and indeed life. That's what Jesus wants. Well, in chapter 22 of Matthew's gospel, there are a number of passages that stack up one after another where Jesus is asked serious questions by different groups. Various people from different religious groups looking for certainty bombard Jesus with difficult questions. These people are trying to discredit him. They're trying to strip him of his growing popularity. One commentator calls this section in Matthew's gospel Jesus' final exam because all the questions are really hard. And this section comes just before Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem for his trial and persecution, and pending death. The final exam, then, is this little section. In each case of this section, Jesus responds to these questions with astonishing wisdom, wisdom that reminds us that life and faith is less about certitude and more about living life in God's presence, trusting in God's promises, and life is about serving God and God's purposes. One of these questions comes from Pharisees and Herodians, it says. The Pharisees, remember, were a group of lay folk within Judaism with a specific fervor to obey the law and maintain the zeal of the prophets. That's the Pharisees. Much of the Pharisees' way of thinking was rooted in certitude, in keeping the law. And it followed in their minds that if you kept the law, you were therefore keeping the faith. And that can often be the case. The law in itself is not the problem. It is the over-focus on the law instead of focus on God. That's the problem. Jesus has numerous encounters in the Gospels about this very subject with the Pharisees. The Herodians are the other group on this scene and asking these questions together with the Pharisees. They were a priestly group, a priestly group that had strong alliances with the government, the occupying Romans. These Herodians, too, would have been nervous about Jesus and his growing popularity and his teachings He's seen as an emerging threat to society, so they would like to discredit Jesus, just like the Pharisees would. Here's a bit more background. For a quarter of a century in this region of Palestine, Jews had been forced to pay taxes. 
pay taxes in Roman currency to the occupying Roman government. Some Jews rested easy with Roman rule and really didn't mind this tax. Probably the Herodians fell into this category, but others also. But most Jews would have a problem with this tax. Uh, Some seeing it as mildly distasteful and just a pain to pay, but others finding it worthy of an insurrection because it threatened the faithfulness to God alone. It, It threatened what the first commandment tells us. We should have no other gods before God. So indeed, when the tax was initiated in 6 AD, there was a Jewish revolt about this tax. Making matters worse, the tax had to be paid with a denarius, a specific coin, the coin which amounted to one day's wage. The denarius coin was minted, and it had the image of Caesar Tiberius on the coin with the inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus and high priest. Those designations... That language made religious people even more angry and nervous. Divine Augustus and high priest on the coin. So the question comes from the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? This is a very precarious question. And Jesus knows it. If Jesus says no... According to the law of God, our allegiance is to God alone, and it's unlawful to pay taxes. That would be the strict religious answer. If he said that, the government and those aligned with the government, like the Herodians, would move in against Jesus because he's revealing himself, indeed, to be a political agitator, one to be discredited. On the other hand, if Jesus says, yes, it is lawful and right to pay taxes to Rome, then he would lose credibility with the religious people who demand allegiance to God alone. So he's in a bit of a trap, and he knows it. Here's our text for today. Jesus says, show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And then Jesus said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then Jesus said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and they went away. This is the word of the Lord. Instead of falling into their trap with a yes or no answer, which would indict him on one side or on the other, Jesus responds with a deeper, broader challenge. When he asks them for the coin, they actually reach into their pockets or their purses and they withdraw the denarius. Now, if they think that they are leading strict religious lives, why in the world are they carrying around a coin with the image of Caesar on it? And just when they want to trap Jesus, he pushes them in a way that they're not expecting. They want an either-or answer. They want to know with certitude so they can measure their faithfulness and test Jesus' faithfulness. 
Yet, what Jesus' answer conveys is that we're always having to decide between Caesar and God. We are always, all of us, having to decide between Caesar and God. They have the denarius in their pockets. Even they, the righteous Pharisees and Herodians, cannot be so righteous if they have the denarius in their pocket. We're also called to discern always, struggle always between the pressures and the priorities of our lives as God's people. What does it mean to be faithful? Jesus has already said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. And here he points out again how we're all inclined to compromise. We're all inclined to compartmentalize. Do this for Caesar. Do this for God. Find ways to go along to get along. Give the emperor the things that are the emperor's and give to God the things that are God's. That's what Jesus says. Here's the wisdom in Jesus' answer. And here's the challenge for our lives. There is no formula for automatically resolving the uncertainties of our lives. There is no equation, there is no certainty that can be applied to guarantee we are the faithful folk. The enemy of faith is certitude. The just live by faith, not certitude. And the way of faith and the way of life with God is not to compartmentalize our lives. I set aside this for God, I set aside this for Caesar, and I set aside this for that and this for me. No. Our lives, our lives belong to God. Life comes from God. Life proceeds to God. We belong Body and soul, mind and strength, dollars, gifts, everything to God. And our devotion is for God. Our lives are to be devoted to God. That's the constant message of Jesus. That's the constant message of all of Scripture. All of life belongs to God. That's where it comes from. That's where it proceeds. That's the truth. Now this morning we heard from Tom Jefferson sharing sincerely about tithing and how tithing has shaped his life and has shaped his faith. Tithing is the practice that reminds him that life is to be devoted to God. It's not a formula. It's a guideline. It's not some automatic measure. It's a path. It's a path that reminds him and reminds all of us life is about devotion to God. That's what we practice. That's what we want to live out. Life comes from God. All of life belongs to God. It involves life. It involves money. It involves time. It involves priorities. Everything. Not compartmentalized, but in service, in love for God. Life comes from God. Life proceeds to God. We seek to live in a way that gives to God the things that are God's. That's our lives, our gifts. Perhaps you've heard the story of the two men who were stranded on a desert island. 
The days began to pass. These two guys began running out of food. One man was obviously way more frantic than the other man. One man was getting afraid as things got worse. Finally, the fearful one turned to the calmer one and said, I don't get it. Here we are. We're stuck on this island. We're running out of food. We don't know what the future holds, whether we're ever going to be rescued. And you seem so calm. What's the deal? And the second man looked at his frightened friend and he said, don't worry, don't worry. I'm a tithing member of my church. My pastor will find me. <laughs> Let me tell you, pastors are always looking for tithing members. <laughs> More importantly, actually, God is looking for tithing people because it's a path to devotion for God. It's all, always about our devotion. Our lives belong to God. We seek to live for God. Jesus urges us in response to the trick question, give to God the things that are God's. That means our lives. Not compartmentalized, not just a small amount, our compassion, our devotion, not just a token, our lives. Our lives live for God. I'm so grateful for people like Tom who are willing to stand up here and talk about how tithing has been a part of his life and how it's given him a deeper sense of faith and commitment and purpose. Ginger and I strive to tithe each year. It's our guide it's about our devotion. Our lives belong to God. Life comes from God. Life proceeds to God. We belong body and soul, mind and strength, all of life for God. Perhaps you and your family can move in that direction, moving toward giving generously, toward giving sacrificially in ways that show that your life belongs to God. It'll give you a sense of purpose, and peace, and possibility, and indeed joy. I promise. This week in the Daily Dig, which is an email that I've referred to before from this pulpit, this week there was a fantastic quote from Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr lived in the second century, second century, and he still remains one of the greatest apologists for Christian faith even still. These words from his work entitled Early Christians convey how faith so significantly changed the life of those early Christians, changed the people from the inside out. This is what he says about Christian people who live not by certitude, but by faith. Listen. We, who ourselves used to have pleasure in impure things, now cling to chastity alone. We, who dabbled in the arts of magic, now consecrate ourselves to the good and unbegotten God. We, who formerly treasured money and possessions more than anything else, now hand over everything we have to a treasury for all and share it with everyone who needs it. We who formerly hated and murdered one another and did not even share our hearth with 
those of, an, of a different tribe because of their customs now after Christ's appearance live together and share the same table. Now we pray for our enemies and try to win those who hate us unjustly so that they too may live in accordance with Christ's wonderful teachings, that they too may enter into the expectation, that they too may receive the same good things that we will receive from God, the ruler of the universe. That's good stuff. We are all seeking to live by faith. May God's Spirit so touch us that we can live by faith and give our lives in devotion to the ruler of the universe. Alleluia. Amen. Let us pray. We believe, O Lord, help our unbelief and move us to deeper faith, deeper devotion, following Christ our Lord. Amen.